You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, thanks for coming and thank you for coming to what is now the sixth season of Black Architecture, which has been supported by uh, the Naomi Milgram Foundation for the entire time as a core part of the program of M Pavilion. We're very thankful for that and we've had the opportunity to have a number of uh, really detailed and interesting conversations and as the years go on, they become more and more specific, which I think is where it gets exciting, particularly for us, about how do we action a lot of these things, not just the why, but how do we do it? Um, so, but to start off, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples as the traditional custodians of the country that we're sitting within today. Um, we're feeling the wind flow through us and for many of the, well, from the countries that I'm from, that means that the elders are speaking to us through the wind. Um, so take a moment to sort of sit and reflect about where we are because uh, a lot of today is going to be about our responsibility to where we are and where we've chosen to live. Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the neighbouring countries and traditional custodians who have connections to these places. So this yarn is going to be about kinship, which is not a conversation we've had as part of the Black Architecture series before, so that's quite exciting. Um, but the idea or the reason that we're having this yarn is because ultimately when we're designing with country, whether it be in architecture, landscape architecture, any built environment profession, even writing the brief, doing the business case, every part of the process of getting a built environment created, ultimately it generally comes down to one or two people um, or one or two types of people that are responsible for speaking for country, whether or not it's appropriate for them to do so or not. Um, and that does bring in an element of cultural risk. So it might be the traditional custodians who have the right to speak on behalf of that country, but all of that falls onto one or three people that are being engaged as part of that process or more, depending on the community. Um, or it falls onto an Indigenous person or a non-Indigenous person working in a practice um, to be the person who advocates for country through a, an engagement and design process and ensures that the integrity of that engagement process is carried through to the final design. This is one example of an epic amount of cultural load, <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say, and to contextualise that a little bit, if we think about our old ways of doing things, <clears throat> our elders and our ancestors um, would have followed a kinship model, which we're going to talk a little bit about. But essentially, you have a responsibility to country. And your responsibility is not to everything. Your responsibility is to care for what you are in kinship with. And that actually breaks down this entire problem that I think we're all starting to face as we come into this profession of trying to engage and design with country and we go, oh my gosh, country is so massive. What even is country? How do you even possibly design with it in a project in the timeframes that you have to run a project in? But if we think about our old ways, every person in our community would have a different responsibility. For me, it might be magpies. For Maddie, it might be lyrebirds. 
Uh, for Anne-Marie, it might be frogs. Um, and when we come to have a conversation about design, yes, we will still bring in our, our expertise and our roles and everything that we do, but then we'll also be in the back of our mind going, okay, but how are the frogs affected by what we're doing? Um, so in that way, in the old way, if you had to reshape country or if you had to understand if something was not going right with country or if you had to understand when it was time to move or be in a space... Um, you would you would have these markers and you would have people who had a deep knowledge of very specific things and collectively you could make a decision. It was never up to an individual. So that's the kind of conversation we're going to have today. This model doesn't exactly operate uh, in any kind of way or scale in the way we practice architecture at the moment, but we're interested in figuring out how. And whenever I say architecture, I mean built environment because, you know, sorry. Um, <laughs> So, um, I'd like to um, ask my panel members to introduce themselves. Um, and I do just want to acknowledge that we were supposed to have Tom Day here as well, but he is unable to make it this evening. He's unwell. Um, but he has been a part of forming this conversation as well. So, I wanted to acknowledge um, his process and conversations and thoughts to date. Maddie, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I'm, I'm Maddie. I'm a Darug woman, so uh, my traditional lands are to the west of Sydney, up into the Blue Mountains, so from the mountains to the sea, um, particularly around the Darubin, uh, the Hawkesbury River. Uh, I trace that lineage through my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandmother, Cecily, uh, and um, through to our ancestors, who we consider to be part of the first stolen generation, uh, who were taken onto Parramatta Native Institute. I've lived most of my life here on Woiwurrung Country, or Tanarung Country, or Jajawurrung Country, um, and so pay my respects to their ancestors and uh, say thank you to country for keeping me safe. I am, gosh, so hard to describe. <laughs> I, I'm many things. Um, I, she's complex, that's for sure. Um, I am an archaeologist by training uh, and um, have sort of moved in lots of spaces uh, in art, in audio, um, storytelling and I'm now a researcher at the University of Melbourne and my research primarily looks at uh, ways of knowing, of bringing together scientific knowledge and uh, Aboriginal ways of knowing or Indigenous ways of knowing uh, together and I work with different traditional owner groups and um, very fancy scientists and we come together and we create stories of place, uh, stories being that enduring thing that connects all of us uh, our brains love them uh, our old people have been telling stories on this land for 3,000 generations plus um, thinking about stories here in this place of, of the bay um, Nam in the, in the inundation of the waters of that connection severing between here and your country uh, stories from uh, southwest Victoria from Gunditjmara country uh, of the eruption of Bajbim that was 30,000 years old and you know that story is you know 30,000 is kind of the scientific understanding of that age of that volcanic eruption uh, but that story is told with an intimacy that carries it through to today um, 
And I always say to the scientists that I work with, imagine if your research or your stories were being told in 30,000 years. Um, I think that is quite a legacy of time that we work with. So, yes, I guess I'm interested in bringing all of these things together um, and that's sort of the place I am now. Thanks, Maddie. Um, my name's Anne-Marie Pisani. I'm a non-Indigenous landscape architect. Um, I live, I was born, live and work on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country. Um, I'd just like to pay my respect to their elders past and present. And very much so for uh, the many conversations that I've had with them um, and the wisdom that they've passed on and the um, guidance that they've given me. I'm also, um, I live and work on Wurundjeri country, but I'm very much connected to more so um, East Gippsland, which is Gunai, Kurnai country. I'm married into Gunai, Kurnai, and um, my husband and I bring up our daughters to be strong in culture, and I try and do what I can as a non-Indigenous person to really try um, and really allow that and bring those bring that through and make sure that those opportunities are there. Um, as a non-Indigenous landscape architect, I'm very fortunate that um, all the work I now do is with traditional owners from across Victoria. Um, so I'm working with a number of um, communities. And my role really is about... It's my role um, with Aspect Studios, where I work, I'm a senior associate, but it's really about partnerships and design, and it's about building relationships. Without the relationships are fundamental to everything, and without those relationships, there is no project. There is nothing for us to do. We need to have that level of understanding and um, build that friendship and that knowledge and understanding, that sharing between us. Um, we as designers, I've always felt that as we as landscape architects need to understand if we have landscape as our canvas, well, we need to understand that. And the best way to do that is to build those relationships with communities and understand the country that we work on and the landscape that we're working with. And that's certainly something that um, sits at the base of everything that I do. And also for my daughters to make sure, I think with what we do is designing, to make sure that the future of what we're doing, it's not just for the here and now, it's actually for the next generations. And you know, what are we leaving them? What's the legacy we're leaving them? And, and for them to, um, I think, experience and feel respected in the country um, and the work that we do and feel that there's um, a level of respect for them and their culture and they can feel strong about that. It's very much about building, for me, it's building level of respect over the next generations as well so they can feel strong um, and um, confident in, in growing up and being part of what it is that they're living in. The cars are agreeing with you. Um, uh, for those who um, haven't been to any of these sessions before, my name is Sarah Lenries. I'm a Trollway woman, so descending from the northeast of Tasmania. I live and work across Wurundjeri and Bunurong country, and um, I work at Jackson Clements Paris Architects, and I'm a lecturer at Monash University and sit on way too many boards. Um, and the, the general intent and the reason that's sort of driving this program is to indigenise the built environment and have these sort of interesting conversations about all the different ways that we can do that. So, to get to the conversation, Maddie, my first question to you is what is kinship? 
Yeah, how long do we have? <laughs> um, so, I mean, kinship is a is at once a simple uh, thing and the most complicated thing in the world. Um, so I guess many people um, will be familiar with the terms country uh, and, and thinking about place as this connected um, system. And kinship is the way in which we and country are connected. So Sarah touched on it before, um, but it, it plays many different roles in your life. Uh, so it's, it's the relationship that we all have to each other. It is the relationship that we all have with country, with all the different aspects of country. It is the law, L-O-R-E, and the way in which we are responsible for different parts of country, uh, different parts of community, different parts of ceremony, uh, the way in which it dictates, the way in which we act together. Um, and so that is the interconnected thread. And if it's hard to understand, um, that's okay, because anthropologists um, say that uh, our ancestral um, social systems are the most complex social systems in the world. So where in other parts of the world people were building up and, you know, uh, exploiting the land, we were building networks, um, tens of thousands of years of kinship networks. Uh, and the way it's been taught to me by elders is that uh, it is a lifelong learning journey. It's a PhD after a PhD after a PhD. Uh, so there's many different facets to it. For me and how it works, for me as a contemporary Indigenous person, knowing that many of our kinship structures are broken and when they're broken, uh, that opens space for exploitation. Um, exploitation of, you, you spoke about um, cultural load. I think that's an exploitation of our kin um, responsibilities because I can't walk away from country. Uh, and many Indigenous people feel that as well. I can't walk away from my community either. So for me as an Indigenous person in 2022, is it? My God. Um, it, it's something that dictates uh, the way in which I feel responsibility to my community, the broader community, uh, the way in which I feel responsibility to country. Uh, and we spoke a little bit about um, your an animal or a plant or a totemic species or perhaps even an element or a celestial body that you have a particular responsibility for. So me, it's the lyre bird. Um, so not only do I have a responsibility to care for the environment, the ecosystem that the lyre bird would thrive in, um, I also can't eat it. Not that I would want to, but people do or did hunt lyre bird. Um, I also... Um, my role in my community is also dictated by the lyrebird. So the lyrebird learns people's stories and tells them back to them, and that's what I do. Uh, there's you know, many different sort of um, ways in which these are reflected, not only in your responsibility to country, but your responsibility to community. So <laughs> kinship is, is that network um, that connects everything and everyone and um, interwoven into that is this complex set of law, of responsibility and of care.
and I might I might just add to that, not in regards to kinship, um, but I think as a again as a non-indigenous person working with community, and I think for us to have that level of understanding of the importance of kinship when we are working with traditional owners, that responsibility that you have, and that if we can start having a little bit more of that understanding, how we then bring that in and give it the space um, that it needs, um, it will it will influence us as well. Um, you know, we all find design, the process of design is all important to us as we have responsibilities to the process of design, but there's another level of responsibility. And I think if we start bringing that in, that's something that many of you, which are Indigenous, non-Indigenous people here tonight, will, and the non-Indigenous designers will, um, it will start influencing the way that you look at design. I think it's also worth noting that generally, according to books, um, there's sort of three different classifications of kinship. Uh, and I'm saying according to books because I didn't come up with this myself. <laughs> um, but there's a moody system, a totem system and a skin system. And skin is about relationship to each other. Um, Moody is about where you fit in the bigger system and totem is about your responsibility to aspects of country. So I think in the context of this conversation, we're talking about that more in alignment with this totem idea of responsibility to country and place. But if you guys have other thoughts, please feel free. Um, so we've been having a little bit of a yarn about this, particularly Anne-Marie and I. We've been mulling about this for a while. Um, about how we might bring in this idea of kinship or the process of kinship into the way that we practice in the built environment and how we might do this. So I'm quite interested to have just a bit of a yarn with you guys about how you think that that actually could be applied, like what parts of that system would be okay for us to bring in and to emulate and why would that be important and how would that be beneficial to country and to community and to reducing that cultural load of traditional custodians uh, particularly when even the traditional custodians have responsibility to a number of things, but not everything. And so how do we sort of share that load, I guess, is the main intent of this yarn. How do we figure out a way to share the load that's not inappropriate? So just foregrounding, nobody's walking away from this conversation with a totem, okay? <laughs> um, like, that's not what we're talking about. But how can we learn from this complex system of caring for country and emulate that in the way that we think about design? I know it's a big question, so whoever wants to start first, please do. I'll start. I think when, we, you know, when we're sort of thinking about that, when we're thinking about country and, you know, it's almost as, um, think about it more as, it's by the biodiversity of country as well. So we understand that, you know, there's um, plants, animals, um, you know, sacred animals, non-sacred animals, there's um, animals, large, small, insects, it's all made, it all makes up a whole ecosystem. But it's also the whole biodiversity of a place. And that connection that traditional owners have, that, that responsibility they have for caring for country and for their connections there, um, you know, and like Sarah said, we're not all going away with animals um, that we're sort of looking at. But um, you know, if we were to understand the biodiversity of a place and if there was one part of it through our design um, and through either the, the methodology of construction or the design process that we've actually undertaken, we make a difference to that country. So instead of protecting that country, we're actually harming it and then trying to fix it again, um, trying to make it good. 
we actually missed that whole understanding. So how can we, through design, design in a way that we're actually protecting country and protecting um, all parts of biodiversity in there? Because if we were to, to ruin um, part of a habitat of an animal, just say, and I'm just going to throw the first animal out there, frogs, I was told Sarah. I have a 22-year-old green tree frog at home, sorry, so that's why I'm just <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty close to, to frogs. Um, you know, if we, were, if we were to design, say, along a, a riverbank and the, um, hab the frog's habitat is going to be in, um, impacted by design, be it landscape design, be it civil design, be it any other um, works that need to be, that are going on there, we need to understand what that impact will be on, the, on that particular creature and how that is going to influence not just that creature and that habitat, but it's also the whole biodiversity of that place. But then thinking again in the future for the next generations, well, what does that mean? Is that a loss of a particular animal in that location? Does that mean then community have lost somebody that, that they were really connected to and somebody's responsibility um, to take care of that particular animal? And does that mean that future generations then won't have that opportunity to experience that part of country, that river edge, the way that we did? Um, and so it's really... I think it's really important for us to to sort of really delve in and take in deeper, greater responsibilities than what we do at just a design level. It's how can we almost have a look at this in a different way, um, a different through a different understanding of what can we do to not not to not uh, advance design and to advance the urban environment, but how can we do it in a different way? I think. Um sort of thinking about everything you've just said, I think I'd also add um, that we all need to engage with the laws of country. So we're on Bunurong country uh, and the laws of this country as um, explained by Nawit Caroline Briggs is um, firstly that Bunurong people must care for country, must care for community, must obey the laws of Bunjil and must welcome all visitors and the next law is that all visitors must care for country, must obey the laws of Bunjil. Uh, so we all, everybody is welcome, but everybody has a responsibility to country. Uh, in other communities I've worked at, um, particularly uh, heading towards the desert, but not quite the central desert, um, we've also spoken about the inherent right of everything on country to exist. However, that right to exist does not negate uh, the, that being, so that kin's responsibility to the laws of the land that they can't take um, and can't be greedy, that they must care for their brothers and sisters um, and, and care for everything around it. So this was in, this was in the context of camels. Um, but I can imagine thinking about this in, in the context of, you know, built design that if we are designing a place, then we need to consider how that impacts everything around it. That it's not that it doesn't have um, a role on country or that it doesn't belong on country, but it must obey the laws of country. Um, and I think by obeying those laws, which are pretty simple and pretty easy, I think, um, you know, then it, then it becomes part of that kinship relationship. There's no reason that we couldn't have kinship with the built form um, it's that we aren't 
building buildings as if they're our brothers and sisters. Yeah, I completely agree. I want to drill in a little bit to the practicalities of how we might do this in a process. Um, so, you know, we've had some initial conversations about the idea of, you know, when you start a project, does everyone get together and go, okay, well, okay, what do I feel affinity with? What do I care for in this landscape the most? What am I already connected to? And is that how you might start this conversation? Or do you start with traditional custodians and say, hey, we've got a design team of 20 people across all these different professions. What are the 20 things that we should be caring for the most? I don't know, speculation time. <laughs> what do you think? Like, how could it actually work in a way that is appropriate? I think we need to take on some of that responsibility out traditional owners are caring for country, we need to take on some of that as well. And and in which way do we do that? Having those conversations with traditional owners of the country that we're working on, um, you know, that's, you know, obviously that's, that's what we would sort of primarily do. But it's about, even before that conversation, it's about how do we set up, or how do we set up the design teams? What is it that we come together in the design teams? What is some of the philosophy that we bring into that? Is this is this something that's important? I mean, you know, I think we're all well and truly understanding, you know, the importance of engaging traditional owners, but we need to start moving it up the next step and we need to keep getting better at it. And, okay, so if we start to understand the, the, the connection and the responsibility, how can we share that load? You were talking about that cultural load is significant for traditional owners. How can we start it being our responsibility to start sharing and taking part on that? Um, and think you know how do we set up our project teams like do we do we all say you know what we're all going to take another step here and it's not just the design team is it more so you know because the design team are those that are that are normally the ones that are, have the opportunity to work with traditional owners directly it's it's the others in the in the teams it's it's the broader teams it's the civil engineers it's the structural engineers it's um it's all the other sort of team members in there it's like well, how do they look at it? Because normally they'll come through with design solutions and then designers will talk and say, okay, well, can we do this a slightly different way? Well, let's give them that sense of responsibility as well and get them to bring it into the project. You know, it'd be such a very different way of, of approaching it, but everyone brings in a little understanding and if they haven't developed in the first project, that's fine. Let's work that through together because it's about sharing that understanding. But give it two or three projects time that they have a chance to do that and they'll be coming to the table with some ideas already. I always think that at the stage in which you become involved or you become involved, it's too late. Uh, we already have a predetermined, um, you know, this is going here. We've zoned the planning. We've decided that this is going to happen. We've decided that this is appropriate. So, you know, I... and. From my archaeology background, I'll kind of come in very early and do a bit of little sniffing all around. Um, and then sort of from my um, place perspective, I'll come in right at the end again and maybe write some interps boards. And there's no connection. There's no th through narrative from the foundations of the planning scheme all the way to the stories that we tell and share in place. And I think that is sort of the fundamental issue. Um, so I think how do we get this right is we need to reconsider the foundations of the Planning Act um, 
And we need to use that as a way to set intentions. And if those intentions can carry forth um, throughout the project, I think that is sort of the way forward for me. Uh, in in who, how, like, is it, you know, we might have 20 frog people on a team, like, a very froggy habitat. So I think it's about um, thinking about the appropriateness of, of, of what are the values of this place from a multi-ways-of-knowing perspective. And I think that's, you know, when I work with traditional owners, it's not about we want to dictate to you, but we want to walk together on this path. It's never, I've never, ever heard we want to tell you what to do is we want to work together. Um, and that is to me, and I mean, Emery, you probably see it as well, is the generosity of our elders is, it makes me cry sometimes seeing how generous they are and that is not reciprocated or really truly understood. Um, and that's just me reflecting back on the history of our peoples, um, how we weren't even allowed to share this sort of stuff you know, in my dad's generation, uh, and now we're sitting here. Um, so, you know, I think that um, setting those intentions of reimagining what healthy country means, you know, I work on Jara country, upside down country, where uh, sediments that are millions of years old were brought to the surface in the gold rush, where whole landscapes are filled with cyanide and arsenic and... Uh, these cancerous sands that are blowing into people's houses. Uh, it's very unhealthy country, but returning it exactly to how it was pre-1770 is not necessarily the goal of Jara. Um, it's about what do we care for now? And so that's why we all need... That's why they want to work together and walk together. Um, so I think it's about opening up to that invitation as well. And I think you're right, Maddie, you know, by the time that we are undertaking the design teams put together, it is late, but it's never too late. There's always something we can do and that's what we need to try and make sure we strive for. What is it that we can do at this point in the process? The planning authority, the, the, the um, guides are already there and, yes, we're all striving to try and get that changed in proper processes, but... How can we, what can we bring in? And the first is engaging with traditional owners and asking them what is it they'd like to do. But it's really about having um, a, um, a responsibility that the design team will do that, will take it on. So it's like, how can we do that? How can we actually, even if it's in the smallest possible way, it's, yeah, I'd like to think it's not the smallest. I'd like us to sort of hit a bit higher than that. But is there something we can do? Can the design team say, okay, we're going to take this on and this level of responsibility? What can we do as this design team, and um, how can we how can we enact it? And you know, if it's already come through and we didn't put it in a submission, and we're already on the project, can we just get everyone just to pause and slow it down a bit? We're not just running straight into site analysis and running straight into everything. Can we just just take a breather? I know there's things that need to keep happening, and we're always on dead on deadlines. But what we find is that actually, if we just take a moment, a pause, and we speak to traditional owners and understand what it is that they see is important and as, um, as Maddie just mentioned now the importance of um, share the sharing the generosity of their sharing that's just one little thing that we can bring back about trying to get something more appropriately uh, responsive approach for them in the project and how we're we doing that and to be able to really um, 
insert that or embed that into the project process and change that process. That's what we can all do. I'm a non-Indigenous landscape architect, but I can have input into the process and we can we can really advocate for that to those um, that we can speak to and um, where we can have some influence. And I think that's the responsibility of all of us. I just had an existential crisis about the word deadline. Um, <laughs> Not the, the reality of them, but the actual word. Yeah. Like, where did that come from? Deadline. And why? Why? Anyway, sorry. I, that's where my mind went and I went on a bit of an excursion. Um, so, okay. So, what I'm hearing is we need to... When a project starts, we need to... It needs to be... Actually, two steps back. Always comes back to this idea of master planning country, which is Danielle Fromick's idea, Butterwang Yuan Woman... She wrote a great paper about it. It's on her website, Jinjama. Suggest you go read it. So, in the context of the systems we work in, we have um, local councils, state council, state government, whoever it might be, master planning country with traditional custodians, the 200-year, 300-year plan for country. Then every project that's procured in that context, um, I'm linking together a number of black architecture yarns here, so bear with me. Um, then every project in that context. Uh, has to conform with or comes from out of the values, rights and laws of country. Those are then replicated. Those values, rights and laws of country are replicated in planning law and planning law is adjusted in order to enable everything that happens on country to be done in alignment with it. Then by the time something gets to our desk, <laughs> the engagement plan's already sorted, the values are there, we know what we're doing. Whether or not we can engage with traditional custodians or not on a project doesn't matter. Every project we do is has a value set that's coming from improving the health and well-being of country. So what then, how do we prepare ourselves for that future, which we're advocating for, and feel free to join us in that advocacy, but um, like, how do we prepare ourselves to be the built environment practitioners that we are, or people who work in with that space, to be able to respond to that? How do you start to prepare yourself as an individual for that future that I would love to have happened yesterday? I think, um, you know, it's it's constantly seeking to do one thing more than you did last time. And it's not something that can happen quickly. It, it takes time, I think, to really have a, not just a genuine understanding, but a thorough, getting more of a thorough understanding. And we can never really fully understand it completely, but I think, but by opening ourselves up to building those, building another relationship, having conversations, not just relationships, it's about continued conversations and in projects and trying and working with traditional owners and trying to gain that different, uh, different Indigenous way of understanding, a different way of understanding. And the more that we can have those conversations, the more that we learn and understand and that we can then start really uh, influencing everything that it is we do. Um, sorry, I just lost track of what you were saying. But I was just thinking, you know, we'd spend, if that process was right, we'd spend less time advocating and more time doing. <laughs> Would be awesome. I mean, I think there's a, there's a huge part of unlearning and relearning that needs to happen, um, even within myself, 
uh, you know, we are institutionalised and we uninstitutionalise and we recreate all the time. Um, and I work at Melbourne University and I totally understand how problematic that place is. Um, so, you know, for me, it's around forefronting Indigenous voices in the work that I do. Um, so I try to read widely, listen deeply um, and engage with sort of openness as much as I can. Um, I think it's also about moving away from engagement or working together when it's only my interests, which is really hard when you work in consultancy or you work in a place that is um, high volume uh, and you're, you know, you only have so many spoons. But um, for me, that's, that's how I build meaningful relationships is that it's not always about me and my work. Um, it's about engaging critically with others' work, um, with priorities of traditional owners. Um, and I guess that is a privilege of the position that I hold in that... Um, 90% of my research is directed by traditional owner groups uh, and the other 10% is um, directed by my bosses. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think um, that's, that's the work that we need to do ourselves. And then I think there's some, some critical questioning that we need to do of the practices that we take for granted, of the foundations under which we operate, um, yeah, we, um, Matt and I were talking earlier today about uh, this idea around um, on balance and that we make decisions on the planning scheme on balance. Um, so on balance, you know, these 50 trees can be demolished for this highway because on balance that seven minutes is, is important. Um, and that, what, what? balance is that um, and that's where I think kinship is actually should be the foundation of that balance yeah. I think as well um, you're just talking about bias and I think as well you know it's almost like we need to keep peeling back the layers design you know, the, the process we do is a very colonial process of design we need to we need to challenge that we need to peel it back and every time we peel back a layer say okay great Traditional owner engaged, you know, we're engaging with traditional owners, we're having a level of understanding, great. Okay, what's the next layer we can peel back? Well, actually, how can we challenge the process that we are doing from, go, from, from the start? You know, there's analysis and there's you know, master planning. Okay, but how do we actually, how do we re, reframe even that process of those early stages in the project that we're doing? How can we do that in a different way that, is, that responds to a caring for country as the primary as a primary sort of overarching um, philosophy of what it is we're doing. So basically everything needs to change. <laughs> <laughs> Easy peasy. Yeah, so good. Um, but I guess the, if we had to have like one actionable takeaway for an individual in their own life, um, like for me, my, my response to this question would be just sit and observe the same place every day and see it change and, and develop a relationship with that place 
see the birds when they're which which ones have different times of day. That's something that I learnt when I was when we were in COVID and I was sitting looking at my desk and my balcony was here. And it's like, okay, the magpies come first, obviously, because that's their cultural responsibility. And then, um, then it's either the crows or the miners who shouldn't be there. And then, like, they fight over who's in what nest. And sometimes they even share the nest at different times of day. It was wild. Um, but for me, that was like, okay, well, I'm sitting here. I've, I can't go anywhere. And I can finally have the time to connect to the place that I actually live in via the birds that occupy the tree that exists outside my balcony. And that taught me so much about temporality, about the way that we relate to each other, about the fact that we have different times and days of spaces, that we can share environments. Um, we don't have to always be in conflict. Uh, I have a colleague at Monash said it the other day in a way that I'd never ex heard it explained before, but like there, we operate in this either-or mentality rather than a dual mentality or a multiplicity mentality. And so like this place, this one tree, was home for so many different birds and insects and possums, mind you. If I leave out the washing basket, I have a possum who makes a nest in it. Um, we call him Peter. Um, <laughs> but, like, just this one tree, right? Like, how small of a field I had to observe over those two years. This one tree taught me so much, and I observed so much about the place that I live in. And I just wonder how often people actually even think about whose country they're on let alone actually sit and observe and get to know a place. It doesn't have to be everywhere. It doesn't have to be everything about it. For me, it was this one tree. So, like, what can people do in their own lives and their own individual practice to prepare themselves for this idea of kinship and how we actually could potentially bring this into the way that we think? Yeah, I guess everybody has a different way of connecting and you've probably seen this before where people have that I get it moment um so some people you know you can tell them and unless they experience something they're not going to get it um or some people you tell someone and you're like, yeah cool um so I think it's it's about thinking about the way in which um you would I think it's an individual journey for each person uh for some people it might be about tending to place so it might be about your garden and it might be thinking about the ways in which um you're planting to enable um, pollinators uh, and thinking a bit more broadly about that connectedness of the pollinator to the whole system of your community and walking around your community and seeing the different plants that people are planting or about sharing um, those resources. It might be, for me, something that was really important was to learn how to weave um, and that was something that I did over lockdown as well. Um, and I learned it from Annie Bronwyn, who is going to be at the M Pavilion, actually, um, over Zoom. And we were weaving for so long that her iPad died <laughs> and then she plugged it back in and came back online. Um, and uh, for me, that was a really meditative experience to connect uh, something physical and purposeful with country, taking resources from country, so working with Lamandra, um, what I've been taught by Arnie Kim Wanden um, is that you go and you set your intentions with country, so you say, if I'm going to make a basket, uh, the warrior wrong word for basket is Jira, so I might go out and say Jira to um, let the Lamandra know. Um, I would know who else is harvesting it in my area, and because where I live, um, there are no uh, 
burrowing animals anymore. So that action needs to be taken up by somebody. So the removal of the lomandro is good for the plant because they're used to being burrowed around in. Um, and so then you take the lomandro, you dry it for two to three weeks, and then you soak it again and it's ready to use. Uh, so that's a really... Um, or if you're in the middle of lockdown, you get raffia from <laughs> Spotlight. Um, but, you know, that that is, is a really intentional way um, of connecting to country, of connecting to its resources, of playing the role of a burrowing animal that no longer exists on country, um, but also continuing that legacy of weaving that's lasted for tens of thousands of years and maybe for built heritage people, they might like that as well. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I think it is, it is about finding that, that way in which you connect um, in there's many ways. Earlier this year, I was um, down at the Twelve Apostles and was fortunate to be there with Eastern Ma, um, traditional owners. And we're right there where um, the visitor centre where the helicopters take off. And it was, obviously it's just after the lockdown of COVID. And um, that one of the um, traditional owners was mentioning, he said um, last year, late last year, so we're, up, we're in the middle of the lockdown. He said um, for the first time, they'd actually seen the Wedgetail Eagle come back and fly over that area, which is the visitor centre, which is right near where the helicopters take off all the time. He said, we just, we haven't seen that for forever because since the helicopters have been there, the wedge table eagles haven't been. And I think for me, it's just like, we sometimes just take the current status quo for granted. We just, it's what we see now, it's what we do, and we just keep working with that. So it's really about challenging process, the way you're doing things, you've always done it, but actually is there a different way that you could do it? Is there a way that you may be able to provide an impact or a better way of doing it or, or just a different way of thinking about it? Um, and, you know, ch just to challenge yourself, I think. Don't take the way that you always do things and the way things are done for granted, I think. We need to, we need to look at... We need to understand in a different way and that's sort of the first steps. I think the other question that you can always ask yourself too is, who am I designing for? Because not everything that you're designing for can speak in a language that you can speak and part of kinship is developing that relationship in a way that you can know something even though you can't necessarily speak the same language. Um, but whenever we design a built environment, it is not just for people and human-centred design, the term can just go and die, um, please. Um, because if we're only focusing on humans, then we're completely, like you said at the very beginning, we're com we'll destroy a habitat and then say how wonderful we are about creating a new habitat, but like completely ignore the fact that we destroyed a habitat to create the new habitat. Um, you know, like it's kind of endless. And if we don't take accountability or responsibility for all living things, and I think I've said this a million times at Black Architecture, but you know, the difference between what uh, non-Indigenous Western society as a stereotype versus Aboriginal society considers alive is very different. Um, and, like, just err on the side of everything's alive because it's a little bit... It's a little bit closer to the reality than everything else. Um, I'm just conscious of time and not running too much over, but I did want to have one final question, um, and that is, I think, a really important one of... Where, what's the line between appropriate and appropriation in this conversation? How do we make sure that 
you know, everything that we've said here today, what people might take away, but even how people might then start to think about this idea of kinship or develop a relationship with place and country, which everyone should because they live here. Where's the line? And how do you not cross that line? I mean, I think it's very... Like, when somebody's so far on one side of the line, it's pretty easy. Like, I'm just, like, immediately... Maybe it's the colour of the roof at Pauline Hanson's. <laughs> like, uh, I was born here, I'm Indigenous. Um, rant came to mind. And hello. Um, but I think, you know, I think it it is about respect. The, the Aboriginal culture, um, we show love by pulling each other up um and that's like it's if you get criticized by an elder it's the greatest gift in the world because they actually care about you um it's not scary but oh (laughs) terrifying and like (laughs) yeah but it is it is a gift um in that if they didn't care about you they would just walk away um so you know I think that that line is held pretty staunchly by our elders. Um, But like Sarah said, we're not giving everybody here a totem today. Um, That would be (laughs) appropriation. But I think uh, if I go back to the laws of the land where everybody is invited and everybody has a role to play in the land um, in caring for country, I think that's that's the line. Um, It's not speaking for country or speaking as country as the traditional owners will do, um, but it is accepting your your role and stepping up to that. A lot of times I work in different ways with different communities. Some communities want to be have the capacity to be really involved in the design process, and that's fantastic because every conversation with them, it, it's an ongoing conversation through the entire design process, which is fantastic. Some communities just don't have that capacity at the moment and they would um, they would love to, but they don't. And they're happy to maybe sort of say, you know, when when you check in with me and, and come through that way. And the way I think about it as always is making sure that we've got an active conversation with the traditional owners that we're working with on whose country we're working with and that we're seeking, that they're providing guidance to us about the ways that we're working through the process and that they're quite comfortable um, in that, with that process, and that is a process that they um, that they approve of. That is um, that is speaking with them. So it's um, you know sometimes it's heavily being heavily involved with them, and sometimes it's not. But that level of appropriation, we need to make sure that we are gu- you know we're having those conversations. We're guided by them, and they approve of the work that's being underdone. And it really is in it really is a co-design collaborative process with them. I think maybe the, um, I think we said this, Maddie and I were on the radio yesterday. Maddie, Maddie is hosting a, a show over summer called Ingenuity on 3RRR. Go check her out. She's amazing. Um, and I've completely lost my train of thought. Um, maybe the takeaway is question mark because I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> the radio show, something that we said on the radio show. It was brilliant, by the way. It was just... Um, oh, yes, you don't need permission to care. Um, nobody, you don't need to wait for a traditional owner to tell you to care. Like, just care. And figure out what caring means to you. And if that is learning about a bird or a frog 
or a tree. Like one of my ancestors, her name translates to a specific kind of tree and so I spend a lot of time trying to understand that tree. Um, you know, find the thing that you find affinity with but don't then go calling it your totem, right? <laughs> like, just start there. If you need somewhere to start, start there because if we don't all care for something, then we're going to keep designing the way that we are and we're going to keep colonising country and while the... We've made so much progress, but still way more, way more to go in the context of the built environment about um, Aboriginal agency and traditional custodians' voices and social procurement um, and economic opportunity. The one thing that's never really part of that conversation is the health and well-being of country. That's not really in any brief I have ever seen. And I'm not a landscape architect, so maybe it's in your brief, but it's not in mine. <laughs> And, you know, we should be caring for country with every project that we do. We should be, regardless of if we can engage or not, we should be leaving country healthier than when it was when we got there. So we've all got a lot of to do to upskill. Um, but, like, instead of approaching it as this giant, very difficult problem, maybe we just start with, okay, what are you, what are you connected to? Or what are you afraid of, as I look at Jen and magpies? Um, you know, <laughs> what, what is it that like you have some sort of connection to and work through that and don't then claim it's Aboriginal knowledge, please. Um, I'm, I'm going to stop now. Um, I'm going to say thank you to these two lovely women uh, to my left. Um, thank you for joining us for the yarn. I really appreciated it. I'm sure there's about 17 hours more conversation we could have on this topic, but hopefully we'll get to figure it out together. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you. You're listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.